0: Okay, good morning. Let's go ahead and get our Bibles open to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. So you've heard me many times, and even recently in John's Gospel, use the illustration of when helping hurts. That is, when we set out to do something helpful that ends up being unintentionally harmful. Amen. Well, what about when hurting actually helps? What about when someone does everything that they can possibly do to cause harm, but in the end, because of God's sovereign will and purpose? They only end up helping. In this morning's sermon, we're going to see that every bad thing that happens to Jesus in his final hour is used by God to bring his sovereign purposes to pass. Let's get into it. Let me pray, and then we'll dive into the text. Father God, I need your help. Every person in this room needs your help, whether they realize it or not. You brought us here this morning so that we might be helped by you. So we pray that your word will do its work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Point number one, Jesus and Isaac. One of the themes that we're going to see over and over and over again in this morning's text is the idea that every bad thing that happens to Jesus brings about the fulfillment of Scripture. So you can just see that in four different places in chapter 19. Just this is going to be sort of rapid fire. You can see in verse 24. Look at verse 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So from top to bottom. So they said to one another, "Let us not tear it, but." Cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. Now look at verse 28. And maybe this time I'll actually start at the right verse. After this, Jesus, knowing all that was uh, now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Now look at verse 36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Look at verse 37. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Now, if you don't know what it means to fulfill scripture, the idea is pretty simple. It just means that God made a promise to his people. That promise was recorded in scripture or in the Bible. And then God orchestrated the events of history in order to bring that promise to pass. Now these are just the four explicit examples in John chapter 19 where John sort of of points at an event and he goes like quite directly, this is a fulfillment of scripture. But you should know that these four explicit examples that John gives us are not the only examples of scriptural fulfillment in this morning's text. For example, look at verse 16. Verse 16 is kind of the second half of verse 16, starting in the the new subheading there, so they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and uh, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Now, because of movies like uh, The Passion of Christ and other pop culture depictions of the death of Jesus, when we think about Jesus carrying the cross to Golgotha, we often think about him carrying an entire cross, you know, like the, the, the lowercase t on his back. But that's almost certainly not what happened. You see, historically, we know that the, the vertical portion of the cross was already there at the execution site. They would have gone out in advance. They would have buried the vertical cross beam deep down into the ground, so that it could bear the weight of those who would be hung on it. What Jesus would have had to carry was not the entire entire cross, but rather the cross bar, the horizontal portion of the cross, which would have been heavy enough, hard enough. Now, this little piece of trivia aside, the real significance of this detail, the fact that Jesus had to carry the instrument of his own death to his own execution site, the real significance of this is the fact that it fulfills Scripture. Having to carry the wood of your own execution to the site of your own execution, who does that remind you of? Let's let's hear from any Awana Bible scholars among us. Who do you think? You can call out Isaac. Isaac. That's right. In Jesus' In his carrying of the wood, we are reminded of Isaac, the son of Abraham, who carried the wood for the burnt offering upon which he was to be sacrificed to the Lord. You can just listen to this in Genesis 22, 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. The father lays the wood upon the back of the son for the offering. This is not coincidence. Isaac in his ministry was pointing forward to Jesus in his ministry. Isaac was the shadow. Jesus was the fulfillment. Consider this. Both Isaac and Jesus were only begotten sons. The sons of promise. Both Isaac and Jesus carried the instruments of their own execution. Both Isaac and Jesus entrusted themselves to the will of their father, even unto death. Both Isaac and Jesus were sacrificial lambs. If you've never thought about Isaac being a sacrificial lamb, remember the context of Genesis 22. It says this, Then Isaac said, Look, the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb? And Abraham's like, oh man, oh man. You, you are the lamb that the Lord has told me to sacrifice. Just, by the way, you know, if, I don't know if you caught it, Christ the true and better Adam. This is the reason why we sing songs like this, because it's just so full of good theology from the Bible. Christ the true and better Isaac, humble son of sacrifice, who would climb the fearful mountain there to offer up his life, laid with faith upon the altar, father's joy and only son And their salvation was provided. Oh, what full and boundless love. Amen. Now, for all of these similarities, there is one key difference between Isaac and Jesus. You see, friends, in the end, the life of Isaac was spared. The life of Isaac was spared. Abraham offered the life of Isaac, and he would have been willing to lay him down to death. And the author of Hebrews tells us that he was willing to do this because he considered that God was able to raise him from the dead. So Abraham said, okay, this is my only begotten son. I love him. I don't want to lose him, but I will offer him because I believe that God can raise him from the dead. But he never had to act on that faith. He never had to plunge the knife down into Isaac's chest. In the final moment, Isaac was spared. But Jesus was not. In his final hour, Jesus prayed to the Father. He said, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. And then he went to the cross and died. Because it was not the Father's will that the cup should pass. And on the cross, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath down to its very dregs. The blade of Abraham's knife never fell down into the chest of Isaac, but the spear of the Roman centurion did enter into the flesh of Jesus, and it went all the way into his heart. Isaac was never placed upon the flames, but Jesus, the true and better Isaac, was consumed by the fire of God's justice. In the life and ministry of Isaac, we see that this God of justice whom we serve He demands that there must be a price paid for covenant unfaithfulness, for the breaking of his law. And yet, in Isaac's final hour, we see that grace and mercy prevail. Why? How could God allow that grace and mercy to prevail in that moment? Because one day, the true and better Isaac would come and die in his place so that grace and mercy could prevail in us. In Jesus, we see the fulfillment of the scripture about Isaac. Point number two, Jesus and the transgressors. When Jesus arrived at the crucifixion site, he would have been laid down on the crossbeam. His arms would have been fastened at the wrist with a rope and then his hands would have been pierced with a nail the size of a railroad spike. He would have been hoisted onto the horizontal beam of the cross where his feet would have been tied and nailed as well. And the scene would have been, to put it mildly, brutal, bloody, horrific, words cannot capture this most violent form of death. And yet, John, in his depiction of this account, tells us next to nothing about it. Just look at verse 18. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. That's it. Rather than waxing eloquent on the horrible sufferings of Christ at his crucifixion, John captures this horrendous event in just four short words. There they crucified him. Why doesn't John elaborate? He was there. He saw it. He, He could give us in every last detail the gruesome events of that day. Why doesn't he help us see, like some of the other gospel writers help us see, the horrors of the death of Christ? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. You see, every gospel writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells the story of Jesus with his own emphasis. He doesn't change anything, but he just emphasizes points for his own purposes. And John does not emphasize the suffering of Christ like some of the other gospel writers because that's not what he's trying to emphasize. What he wants us to see in his account of the death of Jesus is that the sovereign will of God is coming to pass for the salvation of the world even through these acts of great evil. The gospel of John is kind of like the sovereignty of God gospel. He's just driving that point home over and over and over and over again. That's why like when you first become reformed and you just start looking up scriptures to understand grace in a different light, you just always end up back in John. How do I how did I get back here again? Because that's the drum that John is beating over and over and over again. Even through evil, the good and sovereign will of God is coming to pass. Let me just give you another example of what I'm talking about. In the second half of verse 18, we're told that Jesus is placed between two other victims on the cross. John doesn't tell us anything about these guys. He doesn't tell us anything about Jesus' interaction with these other two criminals. And he was there. Why no detail? Because it's not really what he's trying to emphasize. He's trying to emphasize John fifty three twelve, oh, excuse me, Isaiah fifty three twelve. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered, that is counted with, found among, the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. This is what John wants us to see. He wants us to see that this prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled in the death of Christ on the cross. This prophecy made centuries before the birth of Christ. And while we're here, let's just stop and ask ourselves, why did Jesus have to be numbered among the transgressors? Why did God want it to happen this way? I mean, Jesus, the Son of God, is dying. Why did he have to die with criminals? Well, Isaiah 53 tells us. It says that he had to be counted as a transgressor in order to save transgressors. It was only once he entered into the consequences of their transgression that he could then intercede for their crimes. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, friends, we are the transgressors. We should be on the cross, not him, but he went to the cross so that he could be like us and save us from the consequences of our rebellion. It's really mind-blowing when you stop and think about it. I mean, Have you ever just stopped and asked yourself, like, why did God do it this way? Why did Jesus die with two people, one on each side of him? I mean, if I were to plan a spectacular display like this, the death of the Son of God to pay for the sins of the world that would be recorded in the Bible, that would be read by all of the saints for all of church history until Until Jesus came back, if I were to plan it, I would probably make it a solo act. Why bring in the supporting cast? Why surround the Messiah with convicted criminals? So that Isaiah 53 would be fulfilled. Point number three, Jesus the King. Jesus the King. Look at verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, and Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. So starting in verse 19, we're told that this inscription is placed above Jesus on the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. This is Pilate's final jab in his petty quarrel with the Jewish leaders over the death of Jesus. Now, remember the context. Remember what's been happening. Remember last week. Pilate believed that Jesus was an innocent man. He was bitter at the Jews for forcing his hand in this execution. Therefore, Pilate, seeing one last opportunity to stick it to these Jewish leaders, he officially declares in signage for all to see that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And the Jewish leaders are not happy about this. You know, they, they file an official complaint with Pilate. They request an edit. Don't put king of the Jews. Put this guy's crazy and he thought he was the king of the Jews. But he's not. To which Pilate responds with petty delight. I wrote what I wrote. The irony of John strikes again. You see, friends, the titles placed on a cross at a crucifixion, they were meant to serve both as a public condemnation of the criminal and they were supposed to warn others against committing the same crime. So any of you Jews out there who were thinking about standing up and saying, no, you're really the Messiah, this is what will happen to you. And yet, in the case of Jesus... This condemnation is actually a proclamation of the truth of Jesus' identity. And friends, do not miss what John is trying to show you here. Even as Jesus is declared guilty and deserving of death, he is given his true title, the King of Israel. There's a bunch of other good stuff here that you shouldn't miss. Jesus is not given this title, King of the Jews, by a fellow Jew by an Israelite, by a member of God's covenant community. Rather, he is given this title by a Gentile ruler in the service of Caesar, the great enemy king of God's people. The irony is rich. We keep going. John tells us that the sign above Jesus on the cross was written in the three most common languages of the day. So you have Aramaic which was the local tongue of Palestine. That's what all the local Jews would have spoken. Then you have Latin, which was the official language of the Roman Empire. And then you have Greek, which was the the lingua franca, the sort of trade language for most of the ancient world in the days of Jesus. Why did Pilate write this inscription in all three of these languages? Well, from his perspective... From, from an earthly perspective, he was trying to make sure that all of the Jews who were in Jerusalem during Passover, regardless of what language they spoke, so that they could all be warned against trying the same kind of thing that Jesus tried. And yet, according to God's sovereign purposes and plan, this warning serves as a declaration of, To all of the Jews who are filling up Jerusalem during the Just think about how God planned this. He planned for Jesus to die during the Passover when all of Israel would be flooding into Jerusalem to celebrate the high holy days. And then here comes this Messiah and his ministry is a spectacle and his death is a spectacle. Even though they tried to carry out the trial at night so that it couldn't be seen, so that a hubbub couldn't be made. But then there he is, this man, he's dying on the cross, this supposed Messiah. And the final warning against this man is actually serving as a declaration in every possible language that any Jew present may speak or read Jesus is the King of Israel. We can keep going, and we will. Pilate thinks, and the Jews think, that this man is being lifted up in humiliation. And yet we know because the gospel works backwards to our carnal reasoning that this being lifted up in shame is actually Jesus being lifted up in exaltation. Because only when we die can we live. Do you think the Jews could see the royal majesty, the majesty of the Messiah as Jesus hung there on that cross? I mean, what kind of king is this? A king should be seated on a throne. He shouldn't hang naked from a cross. A king should don a royal diadem on his brow with many jewels. He should not wear a crown of thorns. A king should reign from his royal palace, seated in the heart of the city. He should not be outside of the camp where all of the unclean things go to be disposed of. A king should hold royal court surrounded by all of his loyal and loving subjects. He should never be found in the shameful presence of the condemned criminals of the state. Could they see it? Point number four the clothes of Christ. Look at verse 23. So, John tells us that the soldiers who put Jesus to death cast lots for his clothing. If you don't know what casting lots is, it's, it's kind of like rolling dice to arrive at a conclusion. Who's going to get the clothes? Roll the dice and find out. Why do they do this? Well, this was actually fairly typical in ancient executions. You know, you kill a guy, you get his clothes. It's not the best job in the world, but it has some perks. You get the clothes of the dead guy after he dies. Now, a typical Roman execution squad would have consisted of four soldiers. You also notice that in verse 23, the garments of Jesus were divided into four parts plus a tunic. You tracking? Math is pretty simple, right? Four pieces of clothes, four uh, executioners. Each one kind of gets their own thing. But then what do you do about the tunic? Ah, the tunic assuming that this tunic was probably laid upon Jesus in his first beating when they were mocking him pretending that he was a king they put this very fine piece of purple fabric around his shoulders all hail the king and it was a fine piece of uh, piece of fabric we're told that it it, it was seamless that is it wasn't stitched together that means that it was worth more it's kind of like we'll We'll split the $5 pieces of fabric amongst us, but who's going to get this leftover $75 piece of fabric? Well, we will cast lots to find out. Friends, do you see how God is using even this evil thing to accomplish his good purposes? What he's doing here is he's using the greed of Jesus' executioners to fulfill Scripture. What scripture are they fulfilling? Well, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, which we read at the beginning of our service. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, we're going we're gonna to start moving at a little bit of a faster pace here because there's so much fulfillment. I just want to make sure we get it all. Like, so, for example, point number five, the, the hands and feet of Jesus. I'm just going to show it to you. I'm not going to elaborate on it. Then we're going to move on. Jesus' hands and feet were pierced. That was a fulfillment of prophecy as well. Psalm 22, as well, the the great messianic psalm of the Psalter. It says this For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Point number six the thirst of Jesus. (coughs) Look at verses 28. twenty nine. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. The scripture that Jesus' thirst is fulfilling are twofold, both from the Psalms. First, Psalm twenty-two fifteen, my mouth is dried up like a pot shard and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Then Psalm sixty-nine twenty-one, they gave me poison for food and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Have you ever been so thirsty and someone offers you like a warm Coke, right? That's kind of what's happening here, but like to the nth degree, right? Friends, let's just be honest and just say that none of us in this room, like maybe if you were like a refugee from the Sudan and you're here this morning and I haven't met you yet, maybe you know what like true thirst is. But but most of us don't really understand what it means to be like at a cellular level truly thirsty. I mean, you wake up from a long nap on a Sunday afternoon after church and you just cry out to your wife, uh, help, please <laughs> Give me something to drink. I'm so thirsty. It's been three hours. The nap was so deep. Or you wake up in the middle of the night with a heater blasting and, and your tongue is cracked and stuck to the roof of your mouth. And you oh, I'm so thirsty. Or you have a surgery and you can't drink any liquids for 12 hours before the surgery. But you're probably still sucking on a mint even though they tell you not to do that. And you're so thirsty by the time you go into the operating room. Now imagine what it must have been like for Jesus. Who knows how many hours without food or drink. Two different beatings, the second of which would have flayed his back like a piece of meat. Several massive surges of adrenaline. Because that's your body's natural mechanism. That's what happens physiologically when you experience great danger, which Jesus was constantly in the midst of in his last hours. What's the first thing that happens when you get a big surge of adrenaline? Your mouth goes bone dry. Jesus carried the cross from the site of his trial to the site of his execution up a hill. A strenuous workout indeed. Then there's the loss of blood, which is, if you remember, just basically the loss of fluid. Then there is the hours spent baking on a cross under the ancient Near Eastern sun. I know that the text said in chapter 18 that Jesus at nighttime, excuse me, that Peter at nighttime was by the fires to warm himself. But if you've never been in an arid climate like this, that's how it works. It's a hundred million degrees during the day and it's freezing cold at night. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we can we can just be we we, we want to get the reps in. We want to read our chapter for the day. We're looking for whatever we're looking for instead of what God might want us to see. And so we come across words like I thirst and we just we just blow right past them. But I thirst doesn't even begin to capture what Jesus must have been experiencing on that cross on the cross, The thirst of Jesus is a physical manifestation and sign of the spiritual reality of his soul. On the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God for sin. His soul was desperate for any kind of relief from the fires of justice that he was experiencing. On the cross, Jesus cries out, I thirst, in the same way that the man from Luke 16, the rich man who went to hell... He cries out for just a single solitary drop of water to touch his tongue and relieve the pain that he was experiencing. Remember earlier in John 6, one of the first promises that Jesus made to those who were following him. He said, whoever believes in me shall never thirst again. Jesus, who is himself the living water of heaven. Gave himself over to spiritual thirst so that you and I might drink freely of God's grace and never thirst again. Point number seven the skeleton of Jesus. The skeleton of Jesus. Look at verses 31 through 33. Since it was the day of preparation, That is the day that they prepare for the Sabbath, before the Sabbath. And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. What that means is that this was the Sabbath on the Passover week. So it was kind of like a super special Sabbath. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. So what we see here is that the Jews were eager to expedite the death of Jesus. And the reason why is because of that Sabbath thing we were talking about, right? They, the Jews didn't want to leave these dead bodies hanging on a cross on a Sabbath, even on this special Sabbath, because they thought to do so would, would be to curse the land. Again, they're missing it. They're missing it. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Oh no, Deuteronomy, if we leave this guy hanging up, especially during a Sabbath, especially during the Passover Sabbath, God is going to curse our land. You just killed the Son of God. He was innocent. You killed him. The one who came to save you from the curse, you killed him. You're worried about this dude hanging on a cross? No, you curse the land. Idiots? And so they go to Pilate, and they request that Pilate break the legs of the people hanging on the cross. And you may be wondering, well, okay, breaking the legs is not a fun thing. It, it wouldn't have been good, but why, how would that expedite their death? Well, D.A. Carson explains the matter like this. <coughs> the normal Roman practice was to leave crucified men and women on the cross until they died, and this could take several days. They would leave their rotting bodies hanging there to be devoured by vultures. If there were some reason to hasten their deaths, the soldiers would smash the legs of the victim with an iron mallet. Quite apart from the shock and additional loss of blood, this step prevented the victim from pushing with his legs to keep his chest cavity open. Strength in the arms was soon insufficient, and asphyxia followed leading to a torturous and miserable death. You see, on the cross, you most likely died from asphyxiation. You, your body would begin to sag and your lungs would begin to collapse and your diaphragm would begin to spasm and pretty soon you just wouldn't be able to breathe and you would die. So what did you need to do? You needed the strength of your arms and your legs to, to push up on the cross to keep your chest open so that you could breathe. breathe. What a, a miserable way to die. You break the legs, there's no more pushing, you die sooner. Another way in which that which was planned for evil was meant for good. They meant to harm Jesus, but in fact they expedited his death. They relieved him of some of his physical suffering, even as he endured the spiritual suffering of God's wrath. Moreover, in sparing, excuse me, but Jesus' legs weren't broken. So in his legs not being broken, he was spared. I totally lost my place in my notes, and I tried to just power through it like it didn't happen, but I'm just going to keep going. Are you all with me? All right, pray for me. Moving on. No, Jesus' legs weren't broken, and so that fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 34, verses 19 through 20. The righteous person, that's Jesus, may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones, and not one of them, Will be broken. Now, listen. The commentators they they talk a lot about why Jesus died early. They're really they're really trying to figure out what caused Jesus to die earlier than was traditionally the case. I think the answer is pretty simple. He just had two beatings. Remember, typically you would be scourged before you went to the cross, but Jesus was beaten by Pilate in order to satisfy the Jews before he was scourged. So it seems to me that he just had already just absorbed as much punishment as he could possibly absorb physically, and therefore he died sooner than the rest. And this, of course, fulfills the prophecy that not a single bone would be broken. Remember, friends, that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Now, when God gave instructions for the Jews who were celebrating the Passover, right, this lamb was to be sacrificed, the blood put over the doorpost, the blood will save you from the wrath of God. You see how it connects back to the cross. Do you know what the number one instruction was for this Passover lamb as you prepare it? It was in like all caps. It was bolded. It was underlined. It was highlighted. Do not break any of its bones. Numbers chapter 9 verse 12. They shall leave none of it until the morning nor break any of its bones. Exodus 12 46. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house. And you shall not break any of its bones. Point number eight, the heart of Jesus. One of the things that we have not addressed in this account so far is the spear going into the side of Jesus. And verse 35 tells us that there was someone who was standing there at the cross who saw it. Look at verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. That you also may believe. And who was this witness? The one who saw it? The one whose testimony is true. Well, it's almost certainly the same guy from verse 26, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John. That's the author of this gospel. So what is John doing here in verse 35 after talking about how he saw the spear event? He's saying, I was there. I was there. You're not reading an account written from secondary or tertiary sources. I saw them stick the spear into his side. I know that it went into his heart. I saw the blood and water flow from the wound. Now, why does John want us to know that? I mean, he he refers to himself in third person, especially for the last little third of of his gospel, uh, in a sense to try to not draw attention to himself. So if he's not just trying to draw attention to himself, what is he trying to do here? Well, he, he wants us to know that he saw it, So that we will believe that it happened. Friends, John is not approaching this writing of his gospel like a reporter or a journalist or like someone who's trying to write an objective biography. He's writing you this letter so that you will believe. He's not hiding his hand. It's not a a bait and switch. I'm going to try to get you with this and then switch. No, he wants you to know Jesus really lived. And he really died. And he really rose again. And I'm writing you this because I was there and I saw all of it. In his death, Jesus fulfilled the prophecies, the promises, the purposes of God. Now, speaking of these promises, do you understand how interconnected the truths of the gospel are with the trustworthiness of Scripture? Do you understand how inextricably linked the truths of the gospel are to the trustworthiness of Scripture? You cannot miss this. It's one of the main things that John is doing here in chapter 19. He's falling down all over himself to connect the events of the cross to the reliability of Scripture. It happened to fulfill 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 Scripture. scripture. Meanwhile, in our own day, there are Christian teachers out there with massive platforms who are doing the exact opposite. They're trying to tell you that the events of the gospel can in some way be detached from the truthfulness and reliability of the scripture. One of whom is Andy Stanley. If you're you're a visitor today and you're like, ooh, he's really doing it. He's really saying someone's name. This isn't the kind of church where I do that every Sunday. You can ask the members But friends, Andy Stanley just recently preached a sermon where he essentially is doing the exact opposite of what John is doing in this morning's text. And I feel the need to address him by name because he has a massive platform. Tens of millions of people watch his sermons and read his books and and listen to his podcast. And in his sermon... He bends over backwards to tell his viewers, Hey, listen, even if you can't trust all of the Bible, you can trust the gospel truth that Jesus died and rose from the grave. It's exactly backwards. John says the only reason you can trust that Jesus died and got up from the grave is because of what we read and find in the scriptures. It's not an either or. It's a both and. It's precisely because the Bible is trustworthy and true that we can know anything about the gospel at all. If you were to tell the Apostle John that you believe the gospel, but you're not so sure you can trust the scriptures, you're not so sure that they're entirely true, the whole manuscript thing, I don't know, maybe Dan Brown had a point. He would just go, what? How can you know anything about the gospel and trust it if you don't trust the Bible? That's where you learn about the gospel. Now, is it possible to believe the gospel and be saved, but not believe in the trustworthiness of Scripture? Yes, it is possible. Remember the Reformation. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone, which means that we can have some pretty big doctrinal errors and still be saved. But friends, consider these two things if you're considering walking down that path. If you say that you believe in Jesus and the content of the gospel, but not the trustworthiness of Scripture— then according to your own testimony, you believe in a Jesus who believed in the Bible more than you do. Because Jesus believed that the Bible was completely trustworthy and true. He thought everything contained in the scripture was directly from the mouth of God. To say that you believe in the gospel but you can't fully trust the scripture is to put yourself in a position in judgment over Jesus. You're saying that Jesus was in some sense ignorant or naive, but you, no, you see the matter more clearly. What a terrible place to be in. Why would you place your trust in a mistaken Savior? The second thing I want you to consider is that your belief in the gospel may fail you in light of your diminished trust in scripture. If you give up scripture, you're giving up the very means by which God has appointed to teach you and train you up in the gospel. You know what I'm saying? Okay, let's just say you go, I don't know if I can believe all this. I don't know if this whole thing is trustworthy. I think there are some mistakes. I'm not sure. Some parts of it are inspired, but some of it come from... From men and their own ideas, and you know, scribes throughout history and church councils—it's all muddied and polluted. But I still believe the gospel. Well, what are you going to do with that? How are you going to live? I'm having a problem with my marriage. I got—I got to get the gospel to—to to come home now. I need the gospel to be—to help me in my marriage problem. What? Do you, where are you going to go? Where are you going to look? Ephesians five. You say. How do you know that that part's not corrupted? What you're left with when you abandon the trustworthiness and reliability and truth of the scripture is just your own ideas. You're not serving Christ. You're serving your own reason. I'm not saying that it's wrong to ask questions about some of the difficulties in scripture. There's going to be a difficulty in next week's text. Maybe you can read ahead and find it. But here's what I am saying to you. If you abandon the reliability of Scripture, you abandon the only reliable guide to the gospel that you claim to believe. You know what my favorite song of all time is? Uh, Wrong answers only. (laughs) Let's hear it. Who, Who can guess? Come on. Throw it out there. Let's get weird. Guess. Come on. You guys know me. What's my favorite song of all time? Yeah. Ancient of Day, De- ooh, that's such a good song. No, but I'm glad that you thought it was definitely a hymn and a Christian song. What do you got? Anybody, come on, throw it out there. Journey, don't yes, don't stop believing. Mm, hey, that was a fulfillment of scripture right there. They didn't even know it. I'll tell you, yeah. Ooh, that's a close runner up. No, I appreciate y'all think I'm so deep. No, yeah, last one. What you got? <laughs> that's good, that's good. Now, my, uh, my favorite song of all time is Jesus Loves Me. You guys know the song? Let's sing it together. Seriously. Let's get weird. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. First of all, Luke... uh, that was really hard. You do a great job leading us every week. <laughs> Second of all, do you see? Do you see the point? You, you see what the profundity of that children's song is. I can know that Jesus loves me because the Bible tells me so. We sing that song with our kids every night before bed. There are several different ways to look at the Bible. Unbelievers call it a book of silly ancient myths. But even Christians can misunderstand the word. And I can't give you a fully orbed doctrine of scripture at the end of our sermon this morning. But I can tell you this. The Bible is from one angle in one sense a record of all of God's promises. All the promises made. And all of the promises kept. And here in John 19, John John is showing us. God is showing us. All the ways in which those promises have been kept through Jesus. Look at verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In these three words, Jesus is telling you that the Father has kept his promise, it is finished. The mission is fulfilled. The promise has been kept, even despite severe opposition. Just consider the last two chapters. Everyone is trying to kill Jesus. Satan is working betrayal. The Jews are bringing their own assault. The Romans hang Jesus on the cross. And yet, every bad thing that happens to Jesus, God uses it to finish the mission. The apostles say it like this in the book of Acts. Just turn there with me, Acts chapter 4. I want you to see it with your own two eyes. (coughs) Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 26. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. The apostles are saying that this is about Jesus. For truly in the city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Now listen very carefully to verse 28. To do whatever your hand And your plan had predestined to take place. All of the evil from the hands of the enemies of God. God's hand was behind their hands. All of the wicked plans that were conspired and compelled against Jesus. God's plan was behind their plan in order to bring about the fulfillment of of the prophecies, purposes, and promises of God. When Jesus says, it is finished, just stop and think about this. He didn't do anything to bring that to pass. Did he? Did he hang himself on the cross? Did he pierce his own side? Did he number himself with the transgressors? Did he cause the Jews to conspire against him and set up up a, a kangaroo court? Did he plan to die early on the cross? Did he request to carry the instrument of his own death? Jesus did not plan the details of his death, nor did he actively work to bring any of these events to pass. So how did they come to pass? How did they fulfill scripture? How did they keep the promises of God? Because God planned in eternity's past that these things would happen. You ever heard anybody say, like, you, you got to get up pretty early in the morning to pull the wool over my eyes, right? How early in the morning do you got to get up to outplan God? You got to get up an eternity ago. These guys, everyone in this whole story, they thought, oh, we're going we're to do it. We're going to bring our plans and our purposes to pass. Little did they know, God planned to use their plans for his plans. Say that three times fast. So as we close, consider this. In verse 35, John tells the readers of his gospel that his aim is for them to believe. That is my aim. That's why I'm standing here this morning. I'm not standing here for the paycheck. I'm not standing here for any other reason than the fact that I feel like God put me on this earth and in this place at this time to ask you, do you believe? The Pharisees saw Jesus on the cross and all they could see was an agitator and a blasphemer finally facing God's judgment. The soldier saw a criminal caught between two thieves. Pilate saw an innocent man executed unjustly but expediently. So what do you see? If you have eyes of faith that only grace can give you, you will see the fulfillment of every promise that God has ever made to save his people. God promised Adam and Eve that their offspring would crush the head of the serpent. Now here in Jesus's last moments on earth, as he hangs on this cross, it looks like the serpent is crushing the head of the seed. But Jesus said it is finished. So can you see it? God promised Abraham that through his offspring, the nations would be blessed. And yet here we see in Jerusalem that the nations have conspired against the offspring of Abraham and have even put him to death. But Jesus said, it is finished. So what do you see? God promised the Israelites that the blood of the Lamb would cover their sins and protect them from the wrath of God. So as Jesus' body is laid in a borrowed grave, Perhaps his blood to you seems powerless to save. But Jesus said, it is finished. So what do you see? God promised the people of Israel a king. A lion from Judah. A king from David. They said that this king would rule forever in justice and righteousness. But here, as Jesus hangs with the crown of thorns, piercing his brow, we are left to wonder if perhaps we are not mistaken. Like John the Baptist, maybe we wonder if, if this is not the king after all. But Jesus said, it is finished. Here in a moment, we're going to sing a children's song, the second children's song of the morning. And man, I hope you're not too grown to sing it with the faith of a child. I hope you're not too grown, too mature to receive the punchy, powerful, undiluted Bible truth that it has for you. Just listen. Oh God, he always keeps his promises. He said his son would set us free through his death at Calvary. He suffered in our place and then he rose up from the grave. Our God is good and true He cannot lie to me or you. And we can be sure of this, that God always keeps his promises. Let's pray. Father God, we we believe, but we ask that you would help our unbelief. Help us to see what you see as we look at Jesus hanging on the cross and prepare our hearts next week for us to consider the finality of the promise, the stamp of approval and the execution and then the resurrection of your son Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.